Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church, and each week on the show, I have the privilege of really digging into practices, techniques, ideas, and research that can really help you live a happier and healthier life. And in the last 10 or 15 years, there is so much new research and it's powerful that shows us that tools we used to think of as being intangible, like consciousness, meditation, energy, who knew that those things could have any effect on your physiology? And they turn out to have effects down to the level of your cell metabolism, of your gene expression, of your neural functioning. And each week I look at, I read, or I at least skim roughly 100 studies and just look for those gems that are pointing in new directions. And it's been so interesting over the last few years to see how much new research there is showing that meditation, that mindfulness, that energy therapies, that all these intangibles to do with our, our awareness, our mental focus, our consciousness, our states, whether the peak states or whether we're in a really down mood, all of those things are having dramatic effects on our bodies. I know I'm working with colleagues right now in five institutions in looking at all the research on energy healing, Reiki, Joe Ray, therapeutic touch, healing touch, all of these energy medicine techniques. And there are over a thousand studies showing that they affect every single disease that has been examined so far. And so we used to think these things were just all in the mind, were just esoteric concepts. We now know they're producing radical shifts in your body down to those really basic levels of molecular biology. So I encourage you to use the information on the show, tune in each week, get the downloads, look at the websites, and use all these tools. They really make a huge difference in your life, in your health, your happiness levels, and your longevity. And you can find 30 of these practices in my book, Mind to Matter, to get the book, go to the website mindtomatter.com, just mindmatter.com. There are also seven free meditations there. I really encourage you to do those meditations because we're showing now in MRI studies that using those meditations literally changes the way your brain functions. So at that website, mindtomatter.com, grab the meditations and start using them. They really make a difference to your levels of well-being. And they're there and they're free. And so much of the stuff is simply available to you just for diving in there and experimenting with it. So play with mindfulness, play with grounding, play with tapping, play with all of these different techniques and find ones that work for you. It can make all the difference in your health, your longevity, and your well-being. My guest today is Dr. Susan Campbell. 
Susan is a psychologist who I've actually known personally for around 30 years. She's also the author of several books, including Getting Real. And her newest book, if you're seeing the video, I'm waving it around right now, is from Trigger to Tranquil. And you can get a copy and see about her work at her website, susancampbell.com. So it's with such pleasure that I welcome you to the show, Susan. Good to have you here. Thank you, Dawson. It's great to be with you. We were just joking earlier before the show. We only live about five miles apart, and uh, we should be sitting in each other's living rooms <laughs> rather than chatting over Zoom. But I, I also love seeing the evolution of your work, Susan. And this new book, From Trigger to Tranquil, of course, you've had this passion for relationship work with people for a long, long time, but you really use this this whole idea of getting triggered as one of the foundational concepts you're bringing into why we are how we are and i love the fact that you're 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 showing us that this is just part of our biology so go ahead and just explain how you came to that realization where that's taking your work and where that might take people who follow that kind of thread one of my first best-selling books was called The Couple's Journey, and that was in 1980. And the message there was how an intimate relationship like a couple can be a healing journey where people help each other heal from childhood wounds and also heal from the egoic mindset that limits, full of like limiting beliefs, like I have to get my own way all the time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or, or I won't be okay. So we always run up against stuff like that in a couple. You know, my work focused on relationships for a long time. And one of the biggest things that happens in relationships is partners trigger each other, which means I don't always get the reaction that I expected or wanted from my partner. It's not that they have any ill will toward me, but they have different needs and that will activate a part of the brain. So we're going to talk a little bit about brain science here. The part of the brain that's scanning for danger, for interpersonal danger, though, not necessarily a tiger jumping out at you, but that part of the brain that developed when humans were in a primitive environment where there really were physical dangers like tigers, we developed this scanning mechanism like radar looking for danger. And so now we bring that into our relationships, our human relationships. And the thing that we experience as dangerous now is a disconnection from the one we depend on or from someone who's very important to us, could even be a boss or it could be your your child. But any disconnection or disruption in that connection, it triggers people. So if if you're not giving me what I want, I make up the story that I'm not important to you or I'm not as important to you as you are to me. So I better start pulling back. And so relationships are full of these kinds of landmines. And that's why I now focus my work mainly on relationship triggers, because that's the thing that really disrupts connection most of the time. It's designed to notice a break in collect connection, but the behaviors that happen after you're triggered, like blowing up or shutting down or, or just making up a story about the other person, oh, well, I can't ask for what I want with that person because they're probably going to reject me, you know, those kind of stories, that shows you're triggered and that doesn't lead to connections. So now 
if people can understand that we have this automatic mechanism in the brain called getting triggered and that it's really based on the fear that some core need, like the need to feel loved, the need to feel protected, the need to feel safe. I mean, those are core human needs. And when you imagine, think, assume that that need is not being met or not going to be met, you go into an automatic reaction. And it's not anybody's fault, but we can learn to manage it. Just like you said in your intro, when we can become more conscious of, oh, now this is happening inside of me and this is happening, you can learn not just to map your triggers, because I teach people to, to do that, map them, and then interrupt a trigger reaction and insert a new choice, and you actually can rewire insecure brain circuits. I started out in a more like using good communication to help your partner feel safe. And I realized over time, sometimes you're just not there for your partner for whatever reason. You have your own needs. And so people have to help themselves feel safe. So that's a lot of what this book is about is, yes, go ahead and ask for what you want from partners, but sometimes they're not always there for you. And you'll have to use these tools to bring yourself back to safety. Uh, so also much earlier intervention, because if you do blow up or shut down or say that thing on the, on the tip of your head, and you have a lot of examples in the book, like sending that email that's triggered or storm, storming out of a meeting or <laughs> all the way the actions we take when we're triggered. And so you can do that and then go see Susan Campbell or see a couples therapist or go and work with, with somebody, a relationship skills coach and try and repair things. But if you can intervene at the beginning where the trigger is before you go express that, wow, now you've got a much better chance of not doing the stuff that's going to screw up the relationship. <laughs> but if you do, then, I mean, there is the repair script that I provide for when you do, do make a mess, there is a way to patch things up. And actually, because of the way the repair script is worded, it's showing people how to talk about the vulnerable feelings and needs that were at the root of the fear reaction, because trigger is really a fear reaction. Like, I'm, af I'm afraid I'm not good enough. But I don't say I'm afraid I'm not good enough. That would be too vulnerable. Plus, when you're triggered, nothing like that occurs to you because you're in your reptile brain, like just automatic. But if you realize through doing what I call trigger work that underneath my shutting, shutting you out and not listening to you and cutting you off was really, this is getting kind of painful for me to hear you complain about something I didn't do. So I'm just going to shut you out. But once I process, okay, what did that feel like? What did I hear? I realized that deep down, it was this fear that I'm a disappointment to you, fear that I can't please you. And then I get soft. And then that's what I come back and talk about during the repair. I don't justify or explain what I, what I did. That's what most people think of when they say process a trigger or try to repair. They use too many words. They try to explain themselves and it just gets them back into the argument. Whereas the script that I give people in this book is very short, simple, bypasses the ego's need to be right or clear your good name and all those kinds of things. You just drop down to that vulnerable, you know, I was afraid that I was a disappointment to you and I need some reassurance. 
that I am enough or that I'm not a disappointment. Yeah, that just changes the whole emotional tone of the, the communication. And you mentioned the reptile brain earlier and the limbic system and all these systems we have that simply are there. I mean, they're there for evolutionary purposes to scan for those threats you mentioned. And they're on, they're always on. They're on just 24-7, even when you're asleep, especially when you're awake, you're, you're scanning all the time. And those parts are also not verbal. They're uh, they're emotional. <laughs> That's right. And sometimes that feels very powerful. I, I kid around in the book, like trigger reactions like a runaway freight train. It is very powerful because it, it is emotional and kind of body-based. And the, ra the rational mind is offline, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part that we need to be coming from if we're going to have empathy and if we're going to be able to collaborate and see the other person's point of view. We need those skills. Uh, but in order to get from the reptile brain back to the free prefrontal cortex, you need to learn to pause. So that's a practice that people can use. People can learn to just do it by yourself. Or if you have an intimate partner, you can say at the first sign that either of us is triggered and, and we learn what our early warning signs of being triggered are, such as deer in the headlights or shutting down or having a judgmental thought or getting angry or upset. You know, any, any form of emotional distress really means you're triggered. And it's a time for pausing and bringing some more breath and awareness and compassion to the feelings you're having. Yeah, and you use the word mindfulness in the title and in the book, and that means that after the trigger, if you can use that trigger as a cue for mindfulness yes. and that enter that pause, then you suddenly have choices that you, you of directions you can go. You aren't just then enacting those old scripts that have got you into so much trouble in the past. You can learn to interrupt that runaway freight train if you do two things, if you imagine triggering incidents at a time when you're not feeling them and do some pausing and some self-compassion work, which I have exercises for in the book, if you do it kind of like offline when you're not not fully triggered, you kind of make yourself re-triggered a tiny bit and work with those. And then the other thing is learning to pause throughout your day even when you're just a little bit overwhelmed or something, if you can learn those mindfulness practices. And those of us who do meditate, those of us who do frequently pause just to give ourselves some breath, we're in better shape for grabbing one of those tools when we're triggered. Yeah, I like the way you emphasize too, the brain actually is able to rewire those pathways and reformat itself. So if you are practicing that way, taking time when you are triggered to practice those skills, you're actually activating those neural pathways, you're strengthening that mm -hmm. ability of the brain to function. And then when you are triggered, you have that neurological hardware to pull back on. Yeah, and your brain, you know, we talk about neuropl neuroplasticity now, which is the brain can continue to grow and change and develop even into adulthood. So that's very encouraging. So you can, by doing these practices, strengthen that connection between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. So the limbic system is where the amygdala is, and it, go it goes danger, danger, when your partner insults you or disappoints you or something like that. You got danger, danger happening. And if you do the practice 
that calms your nervous system and brings back, oh, wait, my partner and I have been through this before. I don't need to be deathly afraid right now. Let me calm myself and then see if I can open my mind back up. Your prefrontal cortex and the wiring between that and your limbic system gets stronger. And it's like you're more able to say, wait a minute here, that person was under a lot of stress for the last few days. Remember that. Let's give that person the benefit of the doubt. Things like that. You know, Susan, one other question for you that is a little tangential, I'm just curious about. So just reading the WHO analysis showing that rates of anxiety and depression have roughly doubled during the pandemic. They've gone up quite a bit. They're high. Do you think that that is producing more of a strain on relationships than before? Yeah, definitely. So people have both their old triggering and the yeah. general social level of triggering to contend with that. Yeah, I liken it to like a, a big dysfunctional family, but, you know, all the different intersecting crises that are happening now, whether it's fear of getting COVID from your partner who just got back from an airplane trip or fear of somebody labeling you ignorant or stupid or telling you you went down some rabbit hole. If you're on the opposite side of some position, because there's so much polarization and fragmentation of worldviews now, as well as just the economic anxiety that is from a number of things. I mean, COVID, but also the climate and the political situation right now. There's economic anxiety all over the place. So when people are under stress, they're living from their amygdala. They're really, I think we're all a little bit on high alert as we go into situations, especially new situations. We need to bring all our mindfulness tools with us now. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the unfamiliarity part of it, but you're right. We are facing not just the known unknowns, but the unknown unknowns as well. And those are those are all new. There's a lot of unknowns. Yeah. <laughs> and it's important for us to get used to that because this is the future that we're going into and we can, we can develop our ability to live with uncertainty and notice when our nervous system's on high alert. We can bring, even if there's nothing like triggering us that's active in the space, we can go, oh, wait a minute. I'm not breathing fully. Let me give myself a breath. Or I'm really overthinking this one and I'm worrying. I'm going, what if this and what if that? So basically we're triggering ourselves with our own uh, mind and our own fears right now. Wow. So our partners trigger us and then we're triggering ourselves by reacting to all of these things going on. And then do you think it's true that people pick partners that tend to match old childhood wounds or old childhood patterns or, or caregiver characteristics, do you think? Do you see that happening? Yeah. Marriage counselors like myself, we see this over and over that the, let's say the person who was neglected a lot as a child, who was pretty much on their own. And that we could call that the avoidant attached type person who pretty much got used to meeting their own needs and are most happy when there's not too much emotional activity coming toward them. They like a calmer environment. And then they'll pair up with a person who was on high alert all their childhood because there was going to be danger. And so their nervous system is much more on edge 
And so, you know, the hot person and the cool person, let's just call it, you know, but that's the, on one side is that we also call it in attachment literature, the preoccupied or anxious attached person who is more, I call it the hot person now. And then the cooler person who doesn't like that much stimulation, you know, don't always be looking at me for what I'm about to do wrong, please. You know, if you're happy, I'm happy. That's the avoidant. And the preoccupied is if we're connected, I'm happy but they'll be very vigilant about signs for disconnection. And those two come together because what one person's overlearned, the other person's underlearned, like the person who can't handle a lot of intensity can learn to handle a little more, not, not, not as much as the partner might like. No, they can teach themselves to hold a bigger charge. The people who are amped up more of the time and watching for disconnection those people need to pull some of their energy in and learn to you know, be more self-reliant, be more self-sufficient, not always checking to see if I'm loved or not, to put some self-love in the picture. And, and of course, all that takes consciousness and awareness as well. We're going to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. For more on Susan's wonderful work, go to her website, susancampbell.com. We'll be right back after a break. Welcome back. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. And I encourage you to just come back and share every week on the show as you fill your mind, your thoughts, your emotions with positive messages, positive media. I know I really focus on immersing myself in positive media, and it makes all the difference. There's a lot of miserable media out there that'll make you feel a lot worse. So at least counterbalance it with equal doses of positive media. Shows like this, music that supports you, time in nature, time for self-reflection, all kinds of inputs that are going to alter your consciousness in a powerful way. In my book, Mind to Matter, I list 30 of those. And you can just play around with them, play around with grounding, play around with qigong. There are all kinds of methods you can use like this that'll make a difference. And you can get the book at mindtomatter.com, mindtomatter.com. For more on Susan's work, including her new book, from Trigger to Tranquil, from Trigger to Tranquil, go to her website, susancampbell.com. Susan, I'd love to hear an example of a couple you worked with who actually did this, where they came in here to see you, they were having to do repair because of messing up their relationship with that reactivity, triggering, and then all the consequences of that. And then they learn to interrupt early and what happened. Please do share a real world example with us. Okay. Well, here's the case of Donna and Eric. And Donna grew up in a home where her mother was kind of like a movie star type or wanted to be and kind of narcissistic and didn't have a lot of attention for little Donna and would often criticize Donna for her emotions. Like, you know, you're too much. Uh, and, and of course, little Donna is trying to get her needs met by being a little bit demanding. Uh, it didn't work, but um, for, for little Donna. And so she, she grew up feeling like, when will I be loved? Okay. Eric grew up in a home where he was left alone a lot. His parents stayed together, but they really didn't like each other and they fought a lot. And he would be so scared of any kind of anger or aggression that he would just go and hide in his room whenever that happened. And so his idea of a safe place 
is where nobody's raising their voice. So even, you know, even the least bit of what he called yelling was really traumatic to his nervous system. So Donna and Eric get together and they're attracted for all the usual things. You know, Eric looked so confident and he never bragged about himself. You know, he was kind of low key guy and inner had this inner strength about him. And uh, Donna, I mean, and Eric liked Donna because she was so vivacious and expressive. So oh, what attracts you might later. Then later on, you know, get Donna to shut up. And you know, Eric's so self-sufficient that you can't, you know, you can't get any attention from him. So, but, but the trick, so the triggers are, of course, around that. The more I look to Eric for comfort, the more he seems to let me down. And Eric's side, the more I try to please her, I I really do, but I can never seem to get it right with her. There's always something that I seem to have done wrong. It's like she's really looking fine detail at my behavior. Like, I apologized, but it didn't sound sincere. Well, gee, (laughs) what do I have to do? I apologize, that type of thing. So I taught them to first learn the early warning signs that you're triggered. And, you know, and while I'm doing this, I'm also giving people a, a, a little bit of the brain science to help them understand that we're all triggerable. And almost everybody has some unhealed childhood wounds. So we, we talked about those. And so that especially for Donna, she could kind of get over her shame about being triggered because her mom had shamed her, you know, you're too needy, you're, don't bug me, that type of thing. So for her to think that she had just lost it with Eric, the person that, you know, she so loves and depends on, it was, it was just so shameful. And she actually kind of would go into hating herself. So we had some work to do in helping Donna come to greater acceptance, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't too hard because people, people do kind of get it that, wow, you know, my brain has this capacity to just take off and run with just some slight little hurt and make meaning out of it. And so, you know, learning a little bit about the brain and how that works did, did help her. And also some statistics that, that I showed her about how just about everybody does get triggered. So then they're learning first what I call their trigger signature, the early warning signs that tell you that you're starting to get triggered. And they were, you know, for her, it would be things like feeling angry, mostly, wanting to chase after Eric, wanting to question him, being kind of watchful of whether his attention was on her or not. So those were her early warning signs. And for him, he often didn't notice when she was triggered. He, he wasn't like he was the, like not he was the opposite of vigilant. He was like, well, blinders on. But if he would hear if he would hear a complaining tone of voice or anything, I mean, there would have to be some emotional negative energy in the space. And then his trigger signature was basically he, he would either shut down and absolutely not hear her even. He was able to just shut her out completely. He would feel the need to run or to get out of there, but he well, he wouldn't do that usually until it big. Or he would try to explain the the avoidant type a lot of a lot of times we believe that if my partner would only understand that I had good intentions, they would stop being triggered. 
but that's not very satisfying to a triggered partner who really wants empathy and love and connection. They don't want to hear your your good reasons why I shouldn't be upset. Sounded too much like my mother, you know, who's shaming me for having a reaction. So so they be they they got their early warning signs and they got that there's a value in pausing and looking inward. So they, they actually had to see the whole picture before they really could learn to pause, even though pause is actually the first step at the teach couples, the first sign of triggering. Somebody says pause and both people will just sit and take about five slow conscious breaths. So they were able to learn to do that, but they weren't really fully motivated to do those pauses until they realized that after you pause, you feel what that was like. You breathe and make some space so that you actually become a holding space, like a, a bigger, safe environment for feelings to come up. So it's like developing your witness. And they were able to learn that because the way I suggest it is just breathe. And then as you breathe more fully, you're opening up a bigger space and you're observing. And sometimes I'll have them imagine they're observing the reaction that they had on a movie screen. Just some way to get some perspective on what's going on. So there's some different tools. Um, but with, with them, it was simply helping them start with the trigger reaction like He's on his cell phone and we're out at dinner and this was supposed to be our special date. And what's he doing on his cell phone? So that's a triggering incident. So she starts with just the memory of the pain of that and the anger of that and staying with the feeling while breathing and hold, holding a kind of a grounded witnessing presence. You just follow. So I taught them that if you follow your feelings wherever they need to go, You'll come up with, you won't always come up with a childhood memory, but you'll come up with a feeling that was similar to how it felt like when her mother would criticize her or tell her to go away. And that's a huge insight for yeah. her to realize that that, that is a template, mother is a template for what yeah. she's feeling now. We need to go to a break right now, but we'll pick up with this. I okay. want to get into more detail about Eric and Donna because these are all really important cues to be aware of. So for more on Susan's work, go to her website, Susan. Campbell.com. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. My guest today is Susan Campbell, and her new book is called From Trigger to Tranquil. You can find out more about her work at SusanCampbell.com. So, Susan, that was what Donna's reality was. What was the reality like? What were the insights that Eric had? All right. Before I go to Eric, let me also say that when I guide people to go back to that childhood memory, I mean, it just pops up. It, it almost always does, Dawson, or, or just some kind of a feeling of this has probably happened to me multiple times. So when she goes to that, she's in a mindful state where she's witnessing and feeling empathy for herself. And this in and of itself is healing. And also, it makes it safe 
for Donna to feel a little bit of the childhood pain that was buried and repressed and never felt. So it was stuck energy in the body. So she's able to move some of that energy when she's doing this inquiry process. I call it compassionate self-inquiry. So that's one of the big advantages of, of how this also heals childhood wounds is it heals your fear of emotional pain that it turns out in adult relationships, you are going to have that same type of emotional pain. And I, I want to say, in a way, I want to say, um, this is part of an adult relationship. I call it the normal pains of adult relationships. So you begin to tolerate more emotional pain as long as you are able to activate that self-support of the witness and wow. the, the mindfulness. Lovely. So then, okay, switch to Eric. Eric got triggered. So we're taking this incident where he's on his cell phone and she's she's critiquing him and telling him how, you know, how could you be doing this? This is our date night. You're so insensitive. So let's so that's the trigger instance in this case. So Eric, but I mean there were many of those. So I'm just gonna kinda this would be how I'd work with Eric's side. So he would initially be starting to feel kind of defensive. So, you know, they come in the office and they talk about this. And so, okay, what's what's your trigger signature, your early warning sign? Well, first I didn't say anything. I kind of halfway shut down, but I was like, man, she doesn't appreciate me. She doesn't appreciate how hard I'm working. She doesn't even ask me why I'm texting. You know, it's actually for a big deal that she should have known that I was worried about this big deal at work. So, you know, he's running some defensive things. And so he, he's still working on learning. Okay, this means I'm triggered because he's, he's not doing anything. He's not saying anything. It's hard for him to really recognize that he's triggered. But he is. So it's like, calm people are triggerable too. <laughs> we want to remember this. It's not just when... That person's upset with me, then I get triggered. Although some sometimes it, it sort of it is that way that you just go along with blinders. Uh, but you need your partner to kind of go, hello. So um, he's getting defensive. And so his inner inquiry is, what does this feel like to have somebody disapproving of me, not recognizing me? It sort of it was sort of like that feeling that he had so much of his childhood is I'm trying to be a good kid. I'm doing all this good stuff and nobody's nobody's noticing. It's like they're they're so much. My parents are so much in their own pain. You know, they're fighting. They're worried about their relationship. Who's worried about me? And here's Donna again. She's worried about herself. She doesn't have space for me. And so when he starts to feel the feeling tone of the defensive stories, you know, you can start out with a defensive story that doesn't sound very productive, like, how come nobody ever thinks about my needs? Well, you know, that's actually got a lot of tender emotion in there. So you know, just to help him feel what that's like, that emotion. And he, of course, comes in contact with how similar that is to so many memories from his childhood, and he's able to bring some tenderness to this lonely boy, this lonely, unrecognized boy. And then when they come back and do their repair, because so, I, so, I mean, first, I'm telling you this because they had to kind of 
see all the pieces of trigger work before they could actually be motivated fully to pause and self-calm, to actually call for a pause, to actually do the self-calming. Because th these practices, you sometimes, you need to have some deep motivation to change your behavior because, you know, we're used to just being creatures of habit. So he got the motivation. They both got the motivation by doing some of this inner self-compassion work. And then they were able to pause, to do the inner work. And then, yeah, they still made a mess, you know, at the restaurant with, with a, a she attacking and him defending. So they had to clean that up. We'll just go back to how to do a repair. So her repair would, would look something like, when I criticized you for being on your phone, I was triggered. It was probably my old fear of not being important coming up. I need to feel, and then you can, well, there's an optional thing. Like it reminded me of all the times when my mother ignored me and put her own needs first. And I need to feel that I am important to you. So that's that's what her repair looked like. And then he's not feeling blamed. He's feeling kind of tender toward her when she expresses herself like that. And so he can give her a hug or say, you know, you are so important. And that's the end. But then he has to do his repair. So both people always get a turn repairing, even if one person didn't blow up or do anything overt. So he, he would say, when I kind of gave you that cold look and moved away, I was triggered. So he has to own something. Or sometimes he, 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 it's hard to find out what, he, what his actual reactive behavior was. Maybe it was just some kind of judgmental thought. Like when I had that secret thought about you that you're not being fair with me, you're focusing you know, too much energy on me. So when I had that secret judgmental thought, I was triggered. You don't have to say the whole bit, but when I had that thought or when I pulled away, I was triggered. And that was probably my old fear of not being enough coming up. Sometimes during the repair, I will also say things if they labeled each other or did any name calling or, you know, anything really overt. You know, you have to re really say, you know, you didn't deserve this, or I'm not holding that story, or I'm no longer blaming you. you. You have to put in a reassuring sentence like this. And then the final part of Eric's repair was when you told me you didn't like what I was doing, it brought back so many memories of me not feeling like anybody noticed you know, my good efforts. And I need your help feeling I am worthy. So it was his his issue was worthiness. And he had to he had to find the right words for that. But um, you know, I am worthy, I am valued, I am enough. Because it's that it's like another another way he would say it sometimes is I need your help feeling that I am enough. Yeah, and now he's asking her for that help and is also affirming that he can give himself that help. So it's really powerful. What I like too about this, Susan, is that this is a 
process. It's a step-by-step -step process mm -hmm. that people can learn. It's mm -hmm. not rocket science. You just grab the, the book and work through the steps and, and you, can, you can learn to have this really different experience of, of what might otherwise have been a conflict that drove you apart. You're listening to High Energy Health. My guest today is Susan Campbell. For more on her book, From Trigger to Tranquil, go to her website, susancampbell.com. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your high energy host, Dawson Church. I'm so grateful you're here. I'm so grateful you're just immersing yourself in a positive message, in tools that can help and support you. Just think of the value of the hour you've spent here with us today, with Susan Campbell and myself, learning about triggering, learning a skill that can help you in all kinds of different parts of your life. And we'll get into different parts of your life in the next few minutes. But just imagine your life knowing about triggering, knowing about how to intervene, and take that mindful pause before you act on your triggering and your life if you didn't know that. So you're giving yourself the benefit of this understanding. Now you can start to practice and then many things can start to change. So I just want to celebrate you for caring enough about yourself to show up here and to fill your mind with positive ideas and practices you can use to make a difference. Please do this with me regularly, week by week. There are all kinds of things here that can make a difference. And in my book, Mind to Matter, I have 30 practices that epigenetic research shows move the needle on literally your gene expression. That is at mindtomatter.com. For more on Susan's work and for more on her book from Trigger to Tranquil, go to her website, susancampbell.com. Susan, one of the real services you provide in the book is to broaden this at the very end. And of course, this is based on your work as a couples therapist for uh, more than five decades, but you also broaden it to ask questions like, what do you do when you're with a friend who's triggered? When, when you're in a meeting and you're triggered, when you have a kid who's triggering you. And so go and share how you apply these techniques in those kinds of other non-couple situations. Well, um, one of the next chapters in the second half, so the first half of the book is the five steps of trigger work and lot, lots of different practices. The second half of the book, the first part is what if you get triggered by your child? And one of the biggest triggers that parents have, are fear reactions, that's kind of what a trigger is, is I'm the adult, I'm giving all my energy and attention to my kid, what about me? Like there's a little kid inside of every parent that didn't get all your needs met. So how do you work with that when your kid is particularly demanding that day or something? So I, I will, I, as you read through this book, you're actually reading through the practices and taking yourself on an inner healing journey. So I, I take parents on inner healing journey about some of the various typical situations that trigger parents. So there's the parent, there's a chapter on what do you do when you're triggered by a friend. And friends don't have the same agreement that a couple has to stay together through thick and thin. And so in that chapter, I talk a lot more about marking boundaries, knowing your own triggers and actually being able to educate your friends how to not trigger you. So this isn't all, all relationships 
may not be. Some friend relationships are just like Donna and Eric, just like an intimate couple. And you're going to do the work in almost the same way. And you're going to be like practice partners for each other. Some friendships, you need to kind of do the trigger work yourself and know what your key sensitivities are, particularly if you had complex PTSD or had various traumas in your childhood. And you already know that there are certain topics that you uh, get triggered by or certain tones of voice. You can educate your friend about how they can help you feel safe in the relationship. And I also, in the friend chapter, talk about how to actually end a relationship if it's just too triggering. Then I have two chapters about group. What if you're a member of a group and you get triggered? And um, see, again, when you're in a group, you can't do all the same thing. You can't have everybody um, pause. Although I do show you when you're a leader of a group, how you can teach the pause agreement to the whole group, have everybody pause and connect in. So there's two chapters on groups. So there's one where you're just the, the only person in the group. At least you, you're the only person that thinks you're triggered. But what I teach in the one about if you're a leader, if you're a leader in a group, sometimes it's good to educate people that if one of us gets triggered, it's going to disrupt all of our nervous systems, especially if um, we're if, if it's the kind of environment where we meet regularly and we have kind of an emotional bond. So in the group leadership chapter, I show people how you can have a pause agreement in a group, how a group can uh, relax their nervous systems intentionally together as a practice, and then how you can talk about that in the group afterwards. If you're just alone, and you, you're in the group and you get triggered and you don't think anybody else is triggered and you want to handle it by yourself, there are, there are a number of things you can do, but I give people actually little sentence stems of, of ways to just gently educate people like, I need a moment before I respond to that. Or that that question I wasn't quite ready for, you know, give me some time or even I'll get back to you. And then sometimes you do in, in the middle of a group meeting have to take a bathroom break. And go, <laughs> just go by yourself, you know. So I have a number of strategies, some some for when you feel pretty safe and familiar in the group. And somewhere you just have to get the heck out of there. Can we have a triggering break? Is that allowed now? Can we institute a new form of break called a triggering break? <laughs> That's what I describe in the book on leadership, because sophisticated group leaders now are realizing that there are a lot of triggerable people in the group you're leading. And maybe it's a good idea to mention that at the beginning of the group and mention that we're kind of wired together here. Like you said, you know, you give you give workshops at growth centers like Omega and places like that. So a group might be together for three to five days sitting in the same room. You know, we're going to get very connected to each other. But you know what? We're already connected just by being here. And if one person's upset, it's going to affect us all. So what if we became more sophisticated about this whole idea of triggering and I'll I'll, in our Zoom calls that I do, Dawson, I'll have people raise a pen. If you're triggered, just raise a pen. We don't have to get into your pen, but just by raising it, you're presencing that. And sometimes somebody will ask you if you want to 
have any group attention. Sometimes I, as the group leader, will call for a short group pause, like four or five slow breaths. So there's like a lot of different ways to introduce the notion of triggering to group you. Susan, thank you so much. This is just brilliant stuff. The book is from Trigger to Tranquil. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Dawson Church. More next week. Till then, be healthy, be happy, and thank you.